The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, Dan Miller talks about his vision and how he executes his creative garden ideas. Dan is the author of a New York Times best-selling book, 48 Days to the Work You Love, No More Dreaded Mondays, Wisdom Meets Passion, and an Understanding Heart. He has been a guest on CBS's The Early Show, MSNBC's Hardball with Chris Matthews, and The Dave Ramsey Show. Dan has spoken at the White House Christian Fellowship and is in high demand as an expert on new opportunities in today's changing workplace. His 48 Days podcast consistently ranks at the top under careers on Apple Podcasts. The 48dayseagles.com community is an example worldwide for those seeking to find or create work they love. This is episode 62, Seeing Gardens with Creative Eyes with Dan Miller. We'll be back after this. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Dan, why do you garden? You know, it just connects me to the earth in a way that I don't want to ever get away from. I don't want to be so attuned to just concrete and asphalt that I lose touching the earth. There's something magical about it that I think restores my soul. You have a non-traditional style of gardening. Would you explain your approach? (laughs) I guess I do have a non-traditional because everything around me seems to be done kind of a cookie cutter pattern. Where I live now, we recently moved to Florida and we're in a beautiful, beautiful community. And every yard is beautifully, beautifully manicured and landscaped. But that being said, they're all the same. Every hedge is trimmed the same way. Every ligustrum is a mushroom shape, perfectly quaffed. And I just have a hard time with that. I want a little more individuality and personality with that. So I want to intersperse my own kind of unique thinking, colors that I think are good, plants that go together, even if it doesn't come out of a a horticulture book somewhere. What stimulates your gardening ideas? I do like to see things. I mean, it's not that I try to just dream up something in my mind, I do take ideas from parks that we visit, gardens that we visit, walking around our community, seeing things that give me inspiration for an idea. But I like to assimilate different kind of materials into a garden as well, where it's not just plants, but, you know, introduce rocks and sculptures and other kind of things. You know, I had an area in our property up in Tennessee that was kind of unsightly. So I had a bulldozer come in and clear it out because there's just a lot of old brush there and stumps and things. And then I decided this is a perfect area. It was in between our 
barn that we called the sanctuary in our house. So it was a, a unique walking area. You'd come by there and I thought, I'm going to have blueberries and raspberries there. And having grown up with that on the farm, you know, I was used to that. And I thought, hey, I know how to grow these things. I planted bushes and they grew beautifully. And I, that, I we had the blossoms. Everything was coming in really fine. The berries were filling out. And I told Joanne, I said, I know, think in the next couple of days, we're going to have berries that we can really enjoy. You know, I was already envisioning, you know, on my cereal and in cobblers, pies, went out the next morning. And of course, as you can anticipate, they were all gone. The animals beat me to it. And I thought, wow, you know, well, so what are my options? So I could put up a fence around there so that I can just try to beat the deer, try to keep them out, try to keep everything out. And I thought, you know what? That's really not the way that I think. I want to welcome animals on our property anyway, and I want to live in coordination with them, not in opposition to them. So I thought, I need to rethink what I was going to do with that space. So I decided I was going to just approach that as an art canvas. My wife is an artist, and she encourages me to use outside areas for my own art. So I thought, I'm going to get an old truck, one that had the big cow lights on it, and I'm going to just back that in there and surround it with flowers. So I had a lot of fun looking online, finally found a truck that I liked. It was a couple states away, but I went and looked at it. The guy agreed to bring it to me, deliver it to me, and it was a 1939 Plymouth pickup truck. Now, this was beyond restoration, but everything was there. The engine was still there, but it was just that old, you know, patina look because things were rusting on it and all that, just exactly as I wanted. And we backed it in there, parked it. And then I used all that nicely uh, groomed gardening area that I had for my blueberries and raspberries and just planted wildflowers and discovered very quickly that the animals didn't disturb those. And it created a beautiful, beautiful area that people would go visit. And then having lots of grandkids, I thought, you know, there's one thing that's missing. That old truck needs to have an ooga horn. I announced that on one of my podcast, and one of the state senators from Tennessee contacted me. He said, I have an old Oga horn that I have no use for. I'd love to give it to you. So I put that in, put in just a marine battery, and you know, never replaced it in five, six years of having fun with it. But I had a, a big red button up on the dash, and any of the grandkids could walk out through the flowers, step up on the running board of that truck, reach in the window, and push that red button and hear that horn. And I'd hear it going off at all times of the day and knew that the kids were out there having fun. But I loved just that kind of approach. So it wasn't just gee, this is exactly what ought to be here to provide the perfect horticultural, perfect area. No, it was just an idea. You know, I can't grow raspberries, so let's just put an old truck in there, some flowers around, create just a unique conversation piece and an area of enjoyment for my grandkids. That's pretty much my approach. Creating experiences. You made something out of a dead tree. Could you explain that project? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Several years ago, in the spring, I realized that one of the big trees in our property approaching where my office was in the old barn that we called the sanctuary was not going to come back to life. And I, I had no reason for it. I had no understanding. It was just an old scrub cedar tree, but it was about 65 feet tall. So it was a mature tree. And for some reason, it had died. Not going to come back to life. Well, the normal thing would be just cut it down get rid of the stump. That's what any reasonable person would do. But I, I tend to not be very reasonable in how I view those things. So I thought, what could I do that would perhaps be different? 
with this tree, knowing that cedar you know, lasts a long time. Even if the tree is dead, the wood has a unique characteristic to it. And so I contacted a lady who was a wood sculptor. Now, she had never before done a standing tree. She did things on her workbench in her shop, but had beautiful, beautiful sculptures that she had done. I had seen some of those that she had done and then saw on her website. So she came out and looked at it. She was a little reticent because she had never done a standing tree before. And I said, you know, Terry, what's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen is that you mess it up and I just cut it down anyway. That that seems to be the only option now. So if you do anything and it works, we're ahead of the game. And I said, I think there's an eagle in there trying to get out. Well, she walked around it for about 20 minutes, not seeing a whole lot. And finally she said, you know, Dan, I think you're right. So I, I had some scaffolding come out and we cut it about 14 feet off the ground. She came out on a Monday morning and started with chainsaw and then very quickly went to her hammer and chisels and released an eagle. Now, the wingspan was about eight feet across, and the wings were the first two branches on that tree. It was perfectly positioned in the way the eagle was looking to welcome people coming in there and then also to welcome them going out as well. Perfectly positioned for that. In carving that, in releasing that eagle that was there all the time, it exposed those beautiful, beautiful red and yellow colors in there. We didn't add any colors to it at all. We put on a marine finish to protect it because the tree was dead. We wanted to protect the colors, but we added nothing to it. And there's so many metaphors in that, Greg. I mean, it was there all along. We couldn't see it. And in its natural state, an old cedar tree is not very attractive. It's kind of a scrubby tree. So we released something that was more beautiful. And it's also kind of a metaphor for life in that a lot of times when we think something is is dead and gone, no, it's just in a resting season. It's getting ready to release something even better than what we experienced before. You know, even in our own lives, when we reach something that didn't work or something that seems to be an obstacle, sometimes on the other side of that is something more beautiful. So we used that ego. We named it Aristotle, which is uh, the name for the Greek goddess of wisdom, Aristotle, and People were inspired by that. We took lots and lots of pictures, groups of people that would come because this eagle would tower over us, again, being about 14 feet tall, and the eagle itself, you know, being pretty expansive. It was a beautiful place to take pictures. There are thousands and thousands of memories that were created about people standing around that tree, having been inspired by something we did together as a group activity or something they heard there and then taking that eagle picture with them. But I, I love that. And it, again, it, it could have been a lot of people lose trees with lightning strikes or something that just causes a tree to die. But I like to look at it with new eyes. And that's that's a great example of how I like to view those things. You're always looking at your landscape projects in a different eye, in a creative eye, I believe. How did you approach when you first moved into your house? What vision did you have for your landscape? I'm going to talk about our house in Tennessee first, and then I can also talk about Florida here where we've been for a couple of years now. But in Tennessee, we bought a place, well, it was about four acres that we bought initially, and then we bought the property adjoining that, which was another five, which had the old barn on it, had a trailer down front. We just removed that and got rid of it. I had planted a row of 26 Leland Cypress trees along the property that we had initially to block the view from that adjoining property because the previous owner had old junk cars and things back there was pretty unsightly. 
So I planted those trees there and then we were able to buy that property as well. But when we bought both of those, there was not a single flowering tree or bush. It was very utilitarian and just kind of in its natural state, pretty unkempt, except for just the buildings that were carved out. No sidewalks, no bushes at all. Joanne, my wife and I planted over a hundred trees and bushes on that property. You know, Yoshina cherries, things that would give it color and life in the spring and all year long. So we just started planning things. Again, these are things that can be done without a big budget. They just require a little time. We had a lot of people that were willing to share overrun plants on their property. So we had a lot of times that people would bring things with them to our property and we planted them. And over the course of time, just made that more and more beautiful. Now, one of the things that I did there at our house, and it was it was like an old farmhouse. Now, it wasn't that old, but it was built in that way. It was a two-story you know, four-bedroom house. And again, just uh, pretty functional, not a whole lot of beauty there. So I wanted to put in a sidewalk right to start with. Mm-hmm. Now, usually a sidewalk, you know, comes out three feet and then runs straight down the side of a house, you know, the driveway. Well, I didn't do that. I came out with a five-foot wide sidewalk into an area that was circular. So it went into a circle and then winded down back to the driveway. But the whole thing was about 12 feet away from the house. People wondered, why did you do that? That's kind of odd to have all that space in between the sidewalk and your house. And it was. So Joanne and I planted things there and we had a little fiberglass pool, you know, that we put water in and just had fun with it. And then after we lived there for about six years, then I was able to have a gentleman come in who was known for designing areas like that. And I had him create a beautiful, beautiful water feature that went there. See, that was there in my mind from day one. It's just that I wasn't able to afford doing that right away, but we created this space for it, even though it seemed kind of odd at first. But then when it was time, when we were able to do that, we had him come in and put in a beautiful, beautiful water feature with a big flowing water fountain up near the house. And then it ran down to a pond and we had koi fish in there, but it was just beautifully done. And incidentally, that guy as well thought like I do. I had four different guys come in and give me bids on creating kind of an English garden with a water feature in that space that we had between the sidewalk and our house. Three of them came back with perfectly coiffed graph paper showing exactly where each bush would be and what it would be. And it looked like something they had just pulled off out of the library, you know, out of a book and just going to superimpose because the space allowed that. The fourth guy came out there. He had designed the water features at the Nashville Zoo. And I knew the kind of creative work that he did to make it seem like it was a natural part of what was already there. He came out and looked at it, walked around a little bit, chewed in his toothpick. And he says, you know, I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but it'll be spectacular. (laughs) And I says, you're my guy. And he just started creating. So he created it as he went, would turn a rock over and say, ooh, that wouldn't look good here. And I kept saying, you know, how do you know this thing's going to flow with water? Ah, trust me, Dan, it'll be okay. He had such a natural gift for that. Worked with a couple workers and they worked, you know, a couple weeks, laid this thing out, filled it up with water, turned the pump on, and it was beautiful. And we enjoyed that for years and years until we left the property. And of course, it was a big selling point when we sold the property ultimately anyway. Again, just an unusual approach to that. And I just find that it enhances rather than just being something like everybody else has. Just with a little creativity, it allows you to really personalize a space that you're going to be in. How'd your grandkids respond to it? They absolutely loved it. We purposely 
had the bottom pool be about three and a half feet deep where they could jump in. We welcomed that. They could get in there. And it wasn't going to be deep enough to put anybody in danger, even for the little kids. But even the little ones, when they were you know, 18 months old, they'd sit in that creek that would run in between and have water running. The memories, the experiences, the experiments created there, you know, they'd put a little boat in the top, it'd come over the waterfall and go all the way down. But there's so many things that are possible to just give us a pleasant experience when we're around running water. That was the one thing our property did not have that we wanted. But then rather than having it be a creek, you know, 300 yards away somewhere, now we created it right up next to our house. And now the grandkids absolutely loved it. We have so many pictures and memories of them in that area. You know, one of the things that happened, Craig, is the sidewalk that ran up beside there was fairly close to a pretty large maple tree. Well, over a period of about five years, the roots elevated parts of that sidewalk. So now I've got this beautiful sidewalk, you know, pretty wide as I described, running up to the house. And it's really creating somewhat of a hazard because it's elevated like six, eight inches in a couple of parts. There's one section that was about 10 feet long. It was stamped concrete. So I looked at that and thought, well, my options are to tear out that spot, cut the roots out, and then try to replicate what was already there, the stamped concrete. I could take the whole sidewalk out and just redo it in something else. But none of those things appealed to me. Taking a couple of weeks to kind of think and ponder and look and be aware. You know, sometimes when you're aware of a problem, it just helps you see and recognize and create a solution for that. And so I said, what if we put a little bridge there, a little walking bridge that just went up, just was elevated, about 12 inches would come up, just a nice little grade. It'd create a really unique spot in the sidewalk. It would not have to match. I mean, we could do stamped concrete. We actually ended up using laid stone for that, which created a real beautiful contrast, just continuation. It was different. We didn't even try to match it. We didn't disturb the roots underneath. We gave them more room to breathe, so we didn't risk damaging the tree. What happened with that, and it was unexpected to me, is that created a natural home base plate for our grandkids. They would sit on that little bridge and dream and imagine and talk about things they were going to do. It was a natural meeting place for them, a home base if they were playing tag or laser tag, flashlight tag that they'd like to play at night. All those things, that bridge became kind of the landing spot. Unexpected to me, but again, just a uh, great positive outcome of coming up with a creative solution for what seemed to be a problem. No, it wasn't a problem. Our kids knew growing up, they were never allowed to come to us with a problem. It was an opportunity for a solution. And so that was it. The sidewalk was being pushed up by roots. It's not a problem. It's an opportunity for a solution. And the creative solution we came up enhanced the whole landscaping, the whole view, the whole ambience more than if it had never happened. You know, that's a win all the way around for the tree, the grandkids, <laughs> for you, Joanne, everybody. Yes. How did you go about engaging your guests with nature on the Tennessee property? I wanted it to be a place that was very warm, that was safe, that was comforting. There's an old story. I think it came from Mr. Rogers, who in one of his stories to the kids told the kids, if you're ever in trouble, you're out away from home, find a house that has flowers, run to that house because that's going to be a safe place. That really moves me to hear that. I mean, I want my place, wherever it is that I live, to be seen as that a safe place. 
a place where people know they're going to find kindness and compassion, not hostility and anger, opposition. So we did that a lot on our property. But then also there was a woods. Part of that nine acres that we have was wooded. Interestingly, the previous owners saw that as a convenient place to push old washing machines and refrigerators when they're dead. I spent a lot of time hauling trash out of the woods. But then the first year that we owned it, I took a little push mower and pushed through and created a walking path, just following the natural contour of the land back through there, some rock ledges, just created a natural walking path. And then we hauled in wood chips and created a really nice walking path. We always used that when we had other groups in there. We used the sanctuary for training groups, uh, teaching people how to develop their ideas, how to write books, how to turn themselves into coaches. Those are the kind of things that I do as a natural extension. What I do professionally as an author, speaker, coach, we would then introduce people to our property by taking walks. Now, doing that was not just to show them what we had done. It was to help them really get into their creative minds. If I had a client who came to me and said, gee, my life is a mess. I hate my job. My relationships are in jeopardy. You know, what should I do? I'd say, let's go for a walk. You know, let's just talk and walk. If that person did not notice the rabbits, the deer, did not see the blackberries, you know, did not see the colors of the leaves, did not notice the waterfall, it gave me a whole lot of information about that person. They're so closed off to what is right around them. It's no wonder everything in their life is suffering. It was a therapeutic tool for me to see, how does this person think? How do they relate to the outside world? One gentleman was an attorney from New York. His office was on the 19th floor of a building overlooking Central Park in New York City. And on one of those infamous walks, he came for one of our conferences to learn how to be a coach for other attorneys. But on the trail, we were walking down there and it happened to be just late June and we have a mulberry tree. It was a massive mulberry tree. We didn't plant it. It just was a wild mulberry tree, but it was just loaded with berries. And we would lay down big sheets of plastic, shade the branches, and then we'd have the kids stomp on them and we'd turn those into dumplings, pies, and ice cream treats and all that as well. It was a wonderful, wonderful tree. But we had this group of about 30 people walking down there. And we just stopped and I said, help yourself, just eat them. Well, for some people, that was a really unique experience. And for some, almost kind of a, a terrifying proposition, eat berries off a wild bush like this. And that attorney was one of those on the plane back home. Do you know, I thought I came here just to learn how to be a more successful attorney, how to move up the corporate ladder. He says, what I saw here has touched me in a way that I can't quite explain. He moved, he quit the practice that he was in gave up moving up the ladder, changed totally what he was doing, changed how they were living, how he was relating, being available for his kids, transformation in his life that he's very open about. But that started because he was in touch with the land. He experienced something and saw the way we were living where it wasn't just how to move up the corporate ladder, how to get bigger buildings, more employees. No, there's more to life than that. We created our property in a way that would introduce people to not only successful businesses, successful careers, but also just a successful life. And that includes being in touch with what's around you, being in touch with the land. So we had nature trails we'd take people on. We put a zip line up, one of the best things I ever did as a grandpa. But beyond that, I put up a zip line. It was about 350 feet from start to finish, having two properties. We started 
from an old hackberry tree, built a platform where you would climb up about eight steps onto a platform, get on the zip line and go down that past our other little barn. And then I had a braking system on it. It had a built-in block on the line with a bungee cord that would slow you so nobody would hit a tree or get hurt. We had three different mechanisms by which you could go down that zip line. Just a straight bar. You hang on with your hands. That's fine for the bigger kids. Then we had a rope with a board platform on it that you could straddle and sit on that with your legs. That was another thing. And then I had a kid's hammock that I would put on there. We would have little kids. I mean, two years old. We'd put them in that hammock. There was no way they could get out. They'd hang on to the sides they could see and just having a ball. We had professional people, doctors, attorneys, physicians, pastors, accountants, engineers who would show up, go down the zip line as maybe a first ever experience, just another way to experience being outside, to get a thrill, do something you haven't done before as a way to release new ways of seeing things, new ways of creativity. I've always used the land in that way, not just for our own visual enjoyment, but as a way for people to untap things, maybe locked up inside them, to experiencing, to see things with new eyes and landscaping. I don't know of anything that does it better than having those landscaping ideas, interesting things integrated into the landscaping to help people do that. I'm visioning all that going on while you're telling the story. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> One other thing, we had that eagle carved in a cedar tree. Mm-hmm. We call it Aristotle. But I also wanted something that was very tangible and had an acquaintance a gentleman who's an international sculptor. He does pieces that are in front of hospitals, universities, military institutions, places like that. And I said, I would love to have you come to one of our events and do an eagle. I've always been enamored with the characteristics of the eagle. In our 48 days branding, we use eagles a lot just as an encouragement for people to get off the branch, get in the game, that kind of thing. So I said, I'd like to have you come and do an eagle. So I said, I'll set up tent outside and give you the two days that we do our event where people can, you know, observe you in the breaks, but you can be out there in solitude and just create an eagle. He said, no, 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 I need to be inside. I need to hear what they're hearing as well, because we were talking about how to turn your ideas into profitable businesses. We set him up in the back of the room inside that barn. We had about 60 people there. He was in a corner for two days and he created this beautiful, beautiful eagle. There was a lot of symbolism that came from that process that he explained as he was going as well. He started with just kind of a wire frame and started putting clay he was using to ultimately be an eagle. He would tell us, now in the process, this is not going to look like an eagle. He says, there's going to be a point where this looks like a sick chicken. And it's so true of when we start a business, when we start an idea, it doesn't just form beautifully from the start. Typically, that we go through phases where it doesn't look very pretty, but we have to keep pursuing beyond that. But in that two-day period, he created the model of this eagle, beautifully done. It had 48 feathers on it all the way down had 12 tail feathers, which were the number of grandkids I had at the time. That eagle was then transported back to Colorado, went to the foundry. They created a mold and created the perfect image of that in bronze, shipped back to us to put on that property. Wanted that to be both the privilege of having a piece created by this internationally known sculptor, which always been in kind of my bucket list, but also another eagle, just to remind people to get in the game. When we created that, I talked to Scott, the sculptor, and he said, well, I can do just a standing eagle, very stately. And I said, no, you know, somehow that doesn't really grab me. He says, well, I can do an eagle that's flying through the air, or we have one wing just kind of attached to a bush as the support system to make it work. No, that seems kind of common. He knew my work well. He said, what if we did an eagle that was just coming off a branch? 
Wings were fully extended. Motion was far enough forward. It could not stay on. It had to go. It was committed. We call it the launch. And I said, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I want. That's the image I want. So he did it exactly like that. We used a, a branch that he found on our property for the branch that the eagle was coming off of. Of course, that was all turned then into a, a bronze cast. So it didn't matter what the wood was. We used that and it perfectly embodied what I wanted it to convey to everybody who visited there. That eagle we named Athena and it faced Aristotle, the one that was coming out of the, the cedar tree. Totally different processes. One was stripping away everything that was there to expose the eagle. Another was starting from nothing and building it out. Two different processes. Again, so many lessons to be learned there. Then we had this eagle and it was going to be shipped back to me. So it was delivered by truck. It was very large, very, very heavy. Typically, Scott would do those for a university and they would get a big marble column prepared to then set this sculpture on. Well, I looked at those, went to the guys who produced those for cemeteries and other places, and it just seemed cold and kind of unnatural. I finally called the sculptor and I said, Scott, it seems somehow artificial to bring a big piece of polished marble out to my property to then set the ego on there. I said, what if we just found a big boulder on my property and we use that instead? He said, I don't know. I've never done that before. I said, well, what if we did it for the first time? He said, if we can drill a hole down into it to sink the base down in there to hold it, I don't know why that wouldn't work. So I looked around, spotted the boulder I wanted in my neighbor's property, asked him about it. He was thrilled that I wanted a boulder from his property and to be part of what we were doing. Got my tractor, we hauled it over there, put it in place. And then when Scott came and I already had the eagle there, I rented a commercial drill. We drilled a hole 12 inches down in, set that threaded shaft that it was intended to be mounted with, filled it with epoxy, and it was beautiful. And it looked so natural. It looked like really something where an eagle would be sitting on it on our property and coming off of that. We had the creation of that eagle while we had a group there. And about a year later, after going through the foundry process and having it shipped back and mounted and all that, we had an unveiling at another event as well. I've always included other people, just this kind of architectural, horticultural thing to integrate into our property made it really, really special. You already mentioned, we've talked about the fact that Joanne and I moved. You know, those were things that we had to kind of get our heads around leaving there, but they're part of the legacy we left behind there. You and Joanne moved to Florida. Tell us how that changed things. We moved to the kind of house that I would not have dreamed of living in, but we purchased that property in Tennessee, lived there. It was a wonderful, wonderful season of our lives. I had a little John Deere tractor with a bucket, hydrostatic drive. I mean, we could do all kinds of things, moving those rocks and getting things planted. It was a wonderful, wonderful season. 25 years passed almost during that period of time. I was a little older. We had created a lot of maintenance to keep up with things. We had wonderful yard guys would come in and help, but all the creative things, I was still taking care of those. So it was a lot of work. And we finally decided, yeah, we're ready for a new season. So we moved. Well, one of the things that I vowed, Greg, that I would never do is live in a community with an HOA. <laughs> yeah, I'm an old farm kid. I was raising a farm. You know, I don't need to have somebody tell me what color I can paint my house or what I can do with my sidewalk or driveway. We looked at the options down here in the area where we wanted to live. We're in Osprey Ford, just south of Sarasota, north of Fort Myers. And the most beautiful places where you know your neighbors are going to have beautiful places are in these closed communities. So we moved into a closed community. It's called the Oaks. Beautiful, beautiful. What we were looking for, now again, I have to back up a little bit because I was resistant to moving from Tennessee to Florida. I like 
Tennessee. I, I love the change of seasons. I loved our property, all of that. But again, some things had changed, and my wife has always loved the ocean, and we kind of decided it was her time to live where she thought we ought to live. And so I said, okay. But my impression of Florida was that all the grass is brown. Every house looks like the one right next to it. You got these cookie cutter kind of houses where when you drive down the road, you know, you turn in a driveway and here's my garage. You know, you have a hard time finding the front door because there's just a garage there. All the streets are straight down. They're just blocked out like a checkerboard. Well, then we found this community and there are others certainly like of old, mature oak trees. It's called the Oaks. Winding road that comes back in. Green grass. The houses, none of them are the same. It's illegal to have the garage face the road out front. All those things opened my eyes to the idea of, wow, I could get used to this. I could live here, but we're in an HOA, which creates some new restrictions that I was never used to. Now, what I've experienced in the two years we've been here is they're very easy to work with. They're looking out for us. They're not against us. The restrictions that they do have means that, yeah, somebody's not going to paint the house next to us pink. And I kind of appreciate the fact that they aren't going to do that. So we've learned that it's a balance. It's a compromise, but we're thrilled with where we live. We love the people, a lot of kind, compassionate, considerate people all around us who are enjoying in a season of life, much like Joanna and I are. But I'm experimenting again on our property because moving in here, I discovered, as you kind of refer to it in your podcast, to you know, Moblo Go. Well, landscaping company is kind of a misnomer, perhaps. I'm not sure it's really a landscaping focus as much as it is just Moblo Go. I discovered real quickly in talking to my guys, who are wonderful guys that come by every week, that they aren't horticulturists. They aren't really interested in the overall beauty. You know, they'll plant things if I tell them to plant them, but they aren't really into maintaining those. And again, the easiest way to, to maintain things easily is just give it that haircut like every other neighbor has. And when I talk about, no, oh, I want to do this differently, kind of strikes them as odd, although they're very congenial about that. I'm looking out right now at a ligustrum right outside my window told them about six months ago not to do anything to it. They cringe when they come by and there's a new sprout coming out because their thing is just cut that off. And I'm experimenting now with trimming back in. You know, I'm going to get this thing to look more like a tree rather than just a bush with a haircut. So <laughs> it's funny my neighbors drive by and say, hey, you're making us look bad because I'm experimenting with things out in the front yard just to make it interesting. And you've gone from a zone 7A in Franklin, Tennessee to a growing hardiness zone of 9B. You've figured out how to adapt from free-range gardening to HOA gardening. Tell us about some of your projects that you're doing there. Yeah, things are different here in as much as being in zone 7. Vinca, as an example, if it was close enough to a building, we may have some that would actually come back the next year there where we were in Tennessee. But for the most part, you've got those annuals that just come and go. Down here, everything is the experiment. I'm learning how long can impatience actually last? What about geranium? What about coxcomb? I'm learning the new growing seasons down here. Out in front of our house, there was an area that had some plumbago in it. Now, when it's really nice, it's really nice. You know, beautiful blue flowers. This was put there when the house was originally built 25 years ago. It was pretty scraggly looking. I said, you know, I'm not going to have just that scraggly looking stuff there either. I want it really rich and lush or we're going to do something else. So the first year, I cut it down to about six inches. And I thought, I'm just going to see if it comes back full, fine. If not, we'll do something else. Well, very little did come back nice. It was still just really stocky. And I decided, okay, it's time for that to go. So I took that area, doubled it in size, and I had guys bring in two trailer loads of topsoil. 
really rich topsoil. It's one thing about down here, you can get beautiful topsoil without any rocks or anything in it. And they said, well, Mr. Miller, we'll level it, do whatever you want. I said, no, just leave it like it is. Just just dump it. Just leave it two big piles. I'm not sure exactly what I want to do. I'm just going to experiment. So with my shovels and rakes, I got out there, you know, spent a good deal of time figuring out what we were going to do. And I ended up shaping it kind of like a figure eight. I had a low spot running through one section about a third of the way over. I thought, yeah, that'd look good with a little dry creek running through there. I think I'll put a big stone here somewhere. So I just shaped it like I wanted it. And then I talked to my landscaper guy, the guy that owns the company. And I said, I want a, a dwarf palm over here on the side. He said, well, you want one on both sides of that, don't you? And I said, no, I just want one. He said, well, you know, we usually put them, you know, one on either side. And I said, well, if I put one on the inside here, it's going to block a view to our house. I don't want that. I want this to create like a visual border for our house. Is it okay? And I said, now this is important enough to me. I want to pick it out. I don't want you just to bring me a random triple branch dwarf palm. I want to pick it out. So I went to his nursery and chose the one I wanted. We tagged it with his name on it. He picked it up and brought it down there. And while I was there, I also spotted a big rock. This is not a place that sold rock. There are places here in Florida that do. This was not. It was just something that was in the way. They'd obviously just pushed it off in a pile. And I said, see if I can get that rock as well. They did. They agreed on a price and I was fine with it. They brought it down here. So he brought down the triple palm. It was bigger than I could possibly handle. Any vehicle that I have and certainly weight-wise as well, took a number of guys to set it in the ground, but I told him exactly where I wanted it. Then we rolled that rock off the trailer that they had. He said, okay, this side needs to go up. And I said, no. I said, I don't want that side up. It was really rough and pretty unsightly, I thought. He says, well, that's the way everybody wants them now. I said, flip it over. What's it look like on the other side? We flipped it over and I said, that's the side I want up. He says, no. I said, yo estoy el jefe. That means I am the boss. (laughs) He laughed. We planted the palm out to the side, put the rock exactly where I wanted it. And then I got two big false agave that I put in as kind of central plants to start it. I put in, golly, I put in marigolds around that, impatience, some little ferns. I put in a little statue of St. Francis of Assisi in there. I had our guys come out and put lighting in there so it's lit at night. Now my yard guys came back and he says, golly, he says, can I get you to come work for me? I said, that looks beautiful. Now, the funny thing is, I told Joanne just recently, I said, I've seen half a dozen people out here taking pictures of that. I said, either people are admiring it, or I'm going to get a letter from the HOA because I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. Not sure. <laughs> Took an area like that. It was old Plumbago. We pulled that out and boom, now we've got something really nice in there. And we're doing that all around the property, just little things that I can do. And we've got a beautiful, beautiful live oak in the front. Estimate that it's about 230 years old. Wow. It's really, really big. It's got about a hundred foot span. Branches just go everywhere. It's just a, a magnificent adventure for grandkids. I think it's more valuable than the house that we live in. Could be. <laughs> yeah, those things are expensive. <laughs> Oh my, yeah, that would be horrible to lose that. It's certainly an enhancement to our property. I'm experimenting with things like Augustrum and Crotons and Lantana. I have Lantana out there. It just explodes. False agave, bird of paradise. I mean, these are things that I couldn't have up in Tennessee. And so I'm just learning what this zone nine really will tolerate. I'm having a blast because everything grows and the soil is so easy to work with. It's so forgiving. If I put something in and a month later don't like it, I just lift it out and put it somewhere else and just continues to grow. Up in Tennessee, it was a challenge and we could dig down eight inches, hit solid rock and have to move over 10 feet, try it again. Down here, 
Hey, no problem. Just dig down, stick it in, water it. You're good to go. Started a rock collection too. Could you tell us how that collection's going? <laughs> it, it was a surprise to me to have to pay for rocks. Up in Tennessee, it seemed like every spring we had a brand new crop of them that just somehow grew over the winter. We used them for landscaping areas, for water features, for playground areas for the kids and all of that. Down here, I say, hey, I'd like to have a few rocks around here. And I was like, well, this one's going to cost you $200. This one will be $350. And I'm, what are you talking about? Who in the right mind would pay for rocks? Well, I've discovered it's just a different kind of environment down here. And you, in fact, do have to pay for rocks. So we've integrated a few, but I challenge the members of my mastermind, of which your brother is a member, who live in various places around the country. So the last time they were down here, I said, hey, bring a stone with you. Bring a stone from your state, your area of the country, wherever you are. And I'll create a new little area here that's just stones from people who are in my mastermind. So I value the relationships and having those stones will be a constant reminder when I see them. And also a point of conversation. So when somebody who's at our house, they see those, they'll ask about it. It opens a conversation that's meaningful as well about the relationship that I have, sharing life together with other people. That's real recent. And I have stones from South Dakota, Georgia, and New York, golly, Michigan, trying to think through. Got them pretty well identified, but a growing area where people from other areas are bringing me stones because stones are expensive and they bring them on the plane to me here in Florida. <laughs> I wonder what they think when those go through x-ray. Yeah, there's some explaining that has to be done. <laughs> Is this hiding something? No, it's just a solid rock, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's been your most valuable garden mistake? You know, the one I described about planting raspberries and blueberries and then having to totally rethink that space is certainly one. But that's a good example because I don't want to try to create a landscaped area that is totally in opposition to its surroundings, even if that includes the animals around it. I know that gets a little dicey if you're growing a garden where you really want to keep the bunny rabbits and the deer out of there and there may be appropriate time for fences. But for the most part, I want to have things that are pretty integrated that kind of flow together. Just learning that helps me understand that. I've made some mistakes here on our lanai. Got some corn plants out there that when we bought them were beautiful. And now I'm really struggling with those to keep them from turning yellow. There's some things that I'm still trying to figure out been interesting to me in that we wanted to have quite a few large potted plants on our lanai around our pool area. I'm finding that if I make a mistake, if all else fails, I can't keep it running. I just put it out in the yard somewhere and virtually everything we've done that with has thrived. I'm learning in as much as I want to control where those plants are and how they thrive. Now, sometimes I need to just kind of revert back to letting them be in a natural habitat and they can do better there than my artificial environments that I create for them. How do you see nature relating to a new future? I guess we go back to that old adage, you know, you can take the boy out of the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. I think that really plays out. I was raised on the farm. My earliest memories are of walking through a snow tunnel from the house to the barn in Buffalo, New York to milk the cows. I mean, that really is my earliest memory was of that. But we had animals and we had land. And the land, we were so connected. It was our livelihood, you know, growing beans, golly, growing corn and wheat and oats and hay to feed to the cows, to milk, to then sell the milk. I mean, it was a, a natural kind of system. Here's the irony, Greg, is that I very quickly decided I don't want to have to get up every morning, 365 days a year at 530 to milk those cows. 
or throw hay bales in the heat of summer. I really don't. I went to college as a politically acceptable way to escape the farm because I wanted a different life where I didn't have to do that. And yet at the same time, I don't want to move totally away from that. I mean, I was thrilled when we got the property we had up in Tennessee that was big enough that justified having a little John Deere tractor and a couple pieces of equipment could be out there. And that's my escape from doing head work where I'm on a computer. Get outside. And there's nothing more relaxing to me than get outside, get my hands in the dirt for a couple hours. It's always going to be a part of me to be connected to nature like that. I hope my last days are not me locked in some sterile environment, but to be connected to the land, to be very, very close where I can go outside without any shoes and socks on frequently and just walk in the grass. I think there's something therapeutic about that, being connected, being grounded. And there's a lot of scientific evidence for that. But I really embrace that, to just get connected, walk around. That's going to be a continuing part. Fortunately for me, my wife is very much the same. I have a lot of grandkids. They are like that as well. I've got a daughter who has three daughters. They're now 15, 12, and 10. Those girls have never been in a traditional classroom. They've always been homeschooled, and the family is full-time travelers for the last six years. They're outside every day. The oldest granddaughter, 15 years old, she's very much into herpetology, studying reptiles. She has five snakes that she keeps. And she breeds those. She knows more about nature, about being outside, you know, than most adults are ever going to know. She's reading college textbooks and getting college credit at 15 years old for some of the courses she's taken right now in herpetology. I love participating with them. We go on bike rides together or go hunt shark's teeth together now that we're here. But a lot of our activities are outside. And that's very, very different than just inside you know, watching TV or doing video games together. No, we're outside. And it creates a very holistic, healthy, nurturing kind of upbringing. Embrace that, not just from a distance, but by participating fully. Now, the garden and landscape industry attracts many beginning entrepreneurs. In our audience, there has to be someone asking, how can I develop a workable plan for my business idea that would put me on a path to success? What are your thoughts on that? My encouragement is to start with what you already understand and enjoy. Too many people quickly move to what has been successful for somebody else. And so they try to replicate that when it may not be a good fit. So follow your passions, follow your curiosity. What is it you're curious about? Move into that, become an expert in that. It'll develop into a passion. Then when you see something that you're really passionate about, you know, then you identify what problem could you solve in the world by doing that well. Boy, there you have a purpose while you walk right into that. And those are the kind of things that create financial rewards for us as well. So follow your passion. So if somebody really is interested in organic gardening or growing a particular species of cotton or whatever it happens to be, or learning permaculture and teaching people how to be self-sustaining by having their own little gardens. Follow that. Don't think you have to move away from that into something that legitimately can be a business. No, just be creative in doing that in ways that somebody else is not doing it. And right there's your opportunity. So yeah, I loved seeing people who have ideas about horticulture and whatever. The guy who did our landscape work up in Tennessee, wonderful, wonderful guy. Went to the sixth grade, came to the United States, Saved up $600, bought his first lawnmower, started his own business, has never had debt, you know, now has a massive company. But 
when he had been doing our work for about a year, you know, I like to have conversations with people that are around like that. So not only see them as suppliers, but also as friends. He asked me about his business. He said, you know, a lot of people can just jump into the landscaping business and they can go to Home Depot, buy a mower and they're put up a sign there in business competing with him. You know, how could he expand? And I said, well, rather than just expanding into doing more and more yards, which everybody can do, how can you go deeper with your current customers? We were in Williamson County, Tennessee, which is the highest per capita income county in the state of Tennessee, seventh in the nation. So people he was doing work for had discretionary income. I said, what could you offer them in addition to just mowing their grass? Well, he moved into real creative sidewalks. They could do like the stamped concrete sidewalk that I mentioned, or gazebos, or water features, or stonework, stonework around their houses, or freestanding things columns at the end of their sidewalk. He moved into those kind of things and it exploded his business. Now he's not just one more guy who mows grass, but he takes the your outdoor space and really helps you come up with ideas that you could do with that. One of the projects he did fairly recently was a stairway with some deck areas that went from a house down a pretty steep backyard into a lake down below it. What was a $135,000 project that he did? with a whole lot of profit built in there. The people were thrilled. The company that produced the materials that he used came out and did video because they thought it was so spectacular how he used their products. And they use that for their own promotion at this point. That's an expansion beyond just finding one more yard that you're going to mow for 60 bucks. I think any idea, any kind of interest, any kind of passion that somebody has can be developed into a legitimate business if you just and see it through creative eyes rather than just trying to be one more in a sea of sameness. Well, tell us about 48 days and how people may take their resources and develop it into ideas. Yeah, this is not unconnected to what we've been talking about. At first, a little taken back when you invited me to be a guest because I'm not a professional horticulturist at all. And I see your podcast as sharing such valuable information for people who are. Yet I was really intrigued by the idea and honored by the idea because it does scratch my itch. There's so many things that I have done that kind of are in that space, just me being an amateur. But it does relate to what I do with people on an ongoing basis with our company, which is 48 Days. I wrote a book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. That was 20 years ago. It's now in its 20th anniversary edition. I update it every five years. The core message in 48 Days to the Work You Love is to figure out how God has uniquely gifted you. And then what could you do on Monday morning that turns that into purposeful, meaningful, profitable work? That's the message. That's the core message. So whatever it is that you have unique skill and talent and passion in, how can we turn that into meaningful work? 48 Days, our resources help people in all kinds of different areas to take their idea, their passion, their unique understanding of something, and then turn that into meaningful work and a profitable business. That can be done in so many ways. There's pretty much nothing that I would see as an unrealistic way to approach that. Whatever your interest is, there's a way to turn that into something meaningful. Here's a quick example, Greg. I have a son who lived in Africa for over 10 years, and he was really drawn to helping people who are most marginalized, what the Bible would call the least of these, but people who had everything against them. Well, you would think that the way to help those Ladies who were turned into widows because of the genocide in Rwanda, as an example, the way to help them is just come back to the United States and raise money and then go over and give them money. No, 
that's not a good thing to do. I mean, that, that cripples them. That teaches them to be dependent. We have to figure out something more creative than that. So we worked with some ideas, finally came up with a way that they could take discarded calendars, books, magazines in their culture there. Things were going to go to the dump, and they could roll those into what became very, very elegant jewelry. He had designers from the Rhode Island School of Design come over, help them design those things. And it was not just, you know, beads where you buy them because you feel sorry for these ladies in Africa. No, these things were sold at high-end fashion shows in Chicago, New York, L.A., Miami, places like that, where the money then would go back to those women who could be paid more than a school teacher made in that culture. That's the way you take an idea, even if it's something humanitarian where you think, oh, it's got to be a nonprofit. No, probably not. Let's just be creative about turning that into something that's a real business. So whoever's listening, whatever it is that your interest is, I'm confident you can move right through that and develop something that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Tell us how people might connect with you. Sure. 48 Days is our brand. I mean, it comes from the idea that it really came out of a Sunday school class that I was teaching years ago, where it was just teaching people how to navigate these inevitable, relentless career transitions that we tend to go through. But I got uh, rather impatient with people who were clearly frustrated in what they were doing. We'd come up with a, a really cool plan, and then I'd see them a year later, and they hadn't done anything. It's like, what's up with that? Well, I'm waiting until the kids graduate from high school. I'm waiting until I pay off the mortgage. Wait until I clear out my old student loan debt or whatever. There's always something that you're waiting for, you know, waiting for all the lights to be green, which is never going to be the case. So I created this 48 days as a reasonable time frame in which to assess where are you, Talk to people who can give you advice, give you meaningful input, consider what the best options are, maybe three or four, do a little bit more research, choose one and act. That's enough time, no matter what the decision is, 48 days. So that's it. So 48 days is our brand, 48days.com is our website. That's where everything starts. There are links there to my podcast and resources that we have. A lot of things to help people get started in this process of moving from just going through the motions, even if it's reasonable income, going to things that really connect with your heart, but also give you reasonable income. This has been episode 62, Seeing Gardens with Creative Eyes with Dan Miller. Thank you, Dan. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.